Yeah, John chapter 3. And what we've been seeing here, last week we, we looked at um, what it means to be born again. So that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus taking place. Um, and Jesus was looking to lead Nicodemus to the reality of the need to be, what, two words that we saw in John 3? To be what? Born again. The new birth. New life in and through Jesus Christ. And then, and then we ended with Jesus kind of leading Nicodemus to that picture that they had from the Old Testament, a familiar picture from when Israel had been delivered from Egypt, wandering through the wilderness. And in that time, they went through this period of rebellion. And the Lord allowed, you know, these fiery serpents to come uh, among the camp in Israel and, and bite them, poison them. Many of them died. Uh, and Moses interceded. God told Moses to take a bronze serpent, make a bronze serpent, put it upon a pole and lift it up. And as people that are afflicted, when they come and look to that bronze serpent, they shall live. And so Jesus was looking to really tie that into what he would ultimately do for us, how he would lift himself up on a cross and, and take God's judgment for our sin, the very things that had poisoned us, just like it was with those people in Israel and in the wilderness, how we've been poisoned by sin, but by looking by faith to Jesus, we can be healed, forgiven, cleansed, and saved and find life. And so it comes through this born again experience doesn't come like Nicodemus had experienced by following the law, doing good works. It comes through faith in Jesus. This is where Jesus is leading him. Now, all of that picture that we saw with the snake being lifted up and, and what Jesus was going to do, it's all followed up now by one of the most important or well-known verses in the Bible, John three sixteen. We all know this verse. It's a familiar verse to all of us. Martin Luther called John three sixteen the gospel in miniature. Charles Spurgeon said, if we never had another gleam of love from God's face again, we would live on uh, live on this one text alone. This right here kind of sums it all up for us here. And Jesus is going to look to make this kind of transition to what he's telling Nicodemus to, again, reveal what he's ultimately done for us. Now, though this is a verse that I know many of us, if not all of us, could quote, you could talk to people on the street, whether they believe or not, probably are very familiar with John 3.16. We, we have this verse all around us, but the question remains, do we really know what it's saying? Or I could say, have you allowed the words of this verse to really take root and transform your own heart? You see, this verse is all around us, like I said. You can see it on the bottom of an in and out cup. John 3.16. This is why I love in and out so much. It's biblical to eat it in and out. John 3.16 is right there. You could go shopping at Forever 21 and on their yellow shopping bags at the bottom, you'll see John 3.16. You see these verses floating on all, you just have to go to a sporting event and you'll see or watch it on TV and you will see inevitably somebody holding up a John 3.16 sign, which you go, what does that have to do with watching football? But it's there. Now, what's interesting is that the man who I think really got that trend starting because this has become a part of pop culture in a sense. Going to, you, can, you can watch golf on TV, see somebody up there with a John 3.16, hockey, football, basketball, whatever it might be. Wherever there's an opportunity, hold up John 3.16. But it all kind of originated from a man by the name of Rollins Stewart. 
many believe. Roland Stewart, and he was known as the Rainbow Man. He would show up, and this is back in like the 70s and the 80s, he would show up at sporting events by tickets in strategic locations so that he could be seen on TV. He would dance on the aisles wearing the, the rainbow wig. That's why he became known as the rainbow man. Or he'd wear uh, a t-shirt, John 3.16, or another Christian message, or holding up signs. And so this guy really kind of got that trend going. However, maybe you don't know about this, but Roland Stewart, the rainbow man, was arrested in 1992, is now serving three consecutive life sentences in prison on kidnap charges. So here's a man that was very much designed to influence America with John 3.16, but inevitably didn't allow John 3.16 to really begin to influence his own heart and see a, a real transformation, it would seem, take place in his own life. So it's important that we're not just those that say, oh yeah, John 3.16. You get so familiar with it that it loses meaning. It's important that we understand what it's saying. So we're gonna do that. We're gonna break that down here and really take some time to look at what this verse is saying for us here. So today here, we're gonna look at explaining the plan of salvation, verses 16 to 21. And then we're gonna see exalting the person of salvation. Explaining the plan of salvation, first of all. Secondly, exalting the person of salvation. So let's look at that verse, John 3, 16. Let's all say it together, why don't we, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Great verse. Now, as Nicodemus, right, was reminded of that illustration from Numbers, many may have wondered, how could that have possibly helped? How could it help those people in Israel when they're poisoned by fiery serpents to just simply look at a brass serpent on a pole, how is that gonna help? Many people could have thought, that's not gonna do anything for me. I need, I need a surefire remedy. I need something that's gonna actually help me, not just look at something. How does that change my condition? So now Jesus lays out for us here the basics of the gospel and answers all the questions of salvation in this one verse and how we indeed can be set free, cured, forgiven of the poison that's at work in us because of sin. Look at this here. First of all, we see in this verse, the source of salvation. The source of salvation right there for God, the very beginning, for God. In other words, we see that God is the one that is bringing forth the salvation, that he's the source of salvation. It's all wrapped up in him. We have to understand and, and remember that God is the initiator of all good things. He's always the initiator and we are the responders to what God has already done. You see, so often we flip that around and we think we're the ones that need to initiate what God's gonna do. Whether it be in worship where if we sing really loud, maybe we raise our hands, well then God's got to move and do something. And we think sometimes if we do this, we initiate, then God's gonna respond. Or maybe it's through prayer. And we think if I pray very fervently, for more than five minutes, and I pray really loud, well then God's got to act, he's got to move now because of the way that I'm praying. And we think sometimes we are the initiators, God's responder, but let me tell you something, people. God is always the initiator. He's already set everything in motion and set everything in place for us simply to come before him and say, thank you, God, for saving me, for giving me life. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you're the one that's already done all that for me that I just simply need to come and now respond to you 
in worship, in praise, in thanks. And I pray because I just want to spend time with you because of what you've already done for me. The source of salvation is God. He's done it all for us and we thank him for that. Secondly, we see the motive of salvation. The motive of salvation. Why would God do this? It's because he so loved. That's why he put all this into action. Because of his love for us. God is love. This was a way of revealing now his very character and his heart for us. And understand something. God does not love us because we are lovable. We like to think that sometimes. Well, I mean, come on. What's not to... What's not to love here, right? Why wouldn't God love us? And we think sometimes that God has no choice in a sense, that it's just his, well, yeah, look at you. I got, no, we're not lovable and that's why God loves us. In fact, God loves us because it's just based on his character. His love does not exist because of our character, but on account of his. First John four nineteen says that we love him because he first loved us. Again, he initiates, we respond. We love him because he first loved us. And his love for us is simply based on who he is, his character, that God is love. And then we see the target of salvation. It's for the world, the world. It's been done, in other words, for all people and not just a select people. I'm so glad for that. There are people that think, oh no, 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 God God can't love me. You don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've done. And there are those that will discount themselves, disqualify themselves, thinking in their mind that God can't save them or love them. But understand that if you're in the world, you're of the world. With some of you, there's, there's still, you know, we're still trying to decide that or not or figure that out. But if you're of the world, which if you're sitting here, you are, right? Then guess what? This salvation is for you. You're the target of what God is seeking to do. This is for all people, in other words. If you're a part of this world, then you're a recipient of this amazing love of God that leads us to salvation. And then we see the gift of salvation that he gave. He gave. Think about that. A lot of people like to think that the church is all about, oh, they just want you to give. They just, that's all that, that religion exists for is to, you know, just kind of suck you dry of everything. They just want to take, take, take. But understand something. That's not God's heart. God's a God that gives. And he gave something so precious, so wonderful that afforded us life. Not just life now, but life eternal. And this is how this love is exercised or expressed because if we read that simply God is love, we can go, okay, all right, that sounds cool. But how do you really know that God is love? And it's because of this, because he gave. Love is expressed through the gift or through the sacrifice. And God sacrificed his son as we'll see. He gave, he gave up everything because of his love. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's his love being expressed there. And then we see the savior of salvation. Like I said, it's his only begotten son. And this is not, some people like to twist those words to mean that he was begotten in the sense that Jesus was created. No, that's not the case. It speaks of his only son. Jesus came as 
fully man, but fully God. They are one. But God sent his son, Jesus, to be the savior of salvation. Jesus came and laid his life down. He became the curse of sin, your sin and mine. He took the judgment of God that that we deserved. He died and then he rose again. It shows he didn't come as just a man. He came as fully God. And he alone is the savior that is able to save. Nothing else. No one else. No matter what religion will try to say, well, you're saved through this, or you're saved through that means, or that person. There's only one savior. It's Jesus Christ, because he came and he died and he rose again. Now, some people have looked at God through this and kind of thought, man, God's like a cosmic child abuser. And some people have written off God because they think, how could anybody give up their son? I don't want to follow something like that that shows a God giving up a son like that. But understand what God was doing. Yes, he was surrendering his son and his son was willingly making that sacrifice. But God gained so much more than he ever gave up. Because in giving his son, well, his son rose again. And with it, with that, produced a bride. Produced a people that now can spend eternity with God. God gained something far greater in that, or, or gained so much more, I should say, not greater, but gained so much more by giving up his son. Then we see the recipients of salvation, that whoever, whoever. I love that word. You know, in the Greek, it, it means, I don't know, it just means whoever. <laughs> I was trying to be fancy there with you, but... <clears throat> Because we, we sometimes think, oh, whoever really, no, listen, take it for what it is. It's anybody, anybody and everybody. The recipients of salvation, we've already seen that the target was for the world, everybody, but now again, see, some people like to say, well, you know, Jesus died for the elect. The elect, there's, there's an elect group that God knows are gonna be saved and he died, and some people take it even to the extreme where they'll say that the atonement given on the cross was a limited atonement. It was only given to those that were chosen to be saved. Now, now yeah, I, the Bible speaks of the elect. How does that all pan out, work out? I don't know, but I also know that the Bible balances that by saying that whoever desires to come can, can be saved and that God did this, that whoever will believe. Whoever, that means that there's nobody written off, there's nobody excluded from this, there's nobody that can miss out because they're not the elect and they're not the chosen. No, everybody has opportunity. And whoever comes and believes, guess what then? You can say, part of the elect, how about that? Why are you part of the elect? Because I put my faith in Jesus. That's why. This is available to all people. So how do you receive it? Well, like we've been saying, here's the way of salvation, it's by Believing in him. And belief means more than just intellectual ascent. It's more than just kind of acknowledging, oh, there's, I believe there's a God out there there's, or there's some force out there. Sure, I have some kind of belief that there's something. No, it's, it's about putting your faith in Jesus. Believing in him. Not just in a historical Jesus, but having put your trust in him to be the one that will forgive you of sin, make you whole, and bring you into a right relationship with God now. That's what we're talking about here. And then we see the result of salvation. That you will not perish, 
but have everlasting life. See, the reality is that there's one of two destinations for you to go after this life, heaven or hell. And some don't want to believe in hell. That's not a pleasant thought, and I get it. I understand. And so because of that, some people will say, oh no, I, I can't believe that God, if he's a God of love, would send anybody to hell. That he's just gonna accept everybody. That's God. That's my version of God, people will say. That he'll just accept everybody in that day. Or they'll say, there's just nothing. You just kind of cease to exist. There's just kind of like annihilation or extinction that there's nothing after this life. Because they don't have to deal with the ramifications. They don't have to be responsible for what they do now. They just want to say, no, there's just nothing. Nothing at all. But understand, as you read through the Bible, the Bible speaks a lot about hell, where there is, sadly, torment and suffering. And so some will say, if God is a God of love, why would he send anyone to hell? But we need to understand that hell, first of all, was created for Satan. And his name is Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Says that clearly that hell was basically created for Satan and, and, and not for us. This is not God looking to be all, you know, cynical and conniving and like, I'm gonna create a place where I can just send people and just make them just live in torment forever. That's not God. It was created for Satan. God, you see, he's done the one thing to keep you out of hell. That's a loving God right there. He sent his son to this world to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for your sin and to forgive you that you might have life in him and life eternally. He's done the one thing to keep you out of hell. So the question then is not, why would a loving God send someone to hell? The question is, why would I ever refuse his free gift of salvation that sends me to heaven? Why would I ever turn that away? Why would I question that? God's done everything he, he can to make me right and to provide the assurance of where I'm going when I die. God's done it all through his son. This right here is a mighty verse that packs a punch both theologically and, and, and personally. And I pray that we're those that, that have taken the truth of this into our very heart, that we've allowed this just to kind of marinate our own soul because it's a verse that we can say by just memory and, and just kind of not even think much about it anymore. But may this verse hit home today and let it help us realize just the gracious, loving God that we have, the, the Savior that has come and willingly laid his life down so that we could be saved and have the hope of heaven today. Blessed verse we have here. Well, our, our next verse kind of carries on that idea that we've just been talking about, about God not sending anyone to hell. That's not God's heart. That's not God's purpose. This next verse, verse 17, ties into that and says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, God didn't send Jesus into the world to, to point the finger at you, to start to judge you and show you what a rotten person you are. His mission was not to beat you down, but to lift you up in love and in, and in grace. Yeah, we understand that, that we're rotten people, that we're, we're sinners. But he came to show that grace and forgiveness and save those that will put their trust in him, that believe in him. God's desire is always for salvation of humanity. Second Peter 3, 9 says that he's long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's desire. He's not wishing that anyone per should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
In fact, look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believes in him, not condemned. He who doesn't believe, already condemned. So there's two kinds of people in the world and, and, and John really looks to kind of present this through the gospel of John, this picture of believers and unbelievers. Believers and unbelievers. Two kinds of people in the world today. If you believe in Jesus, then guess what? It says you're not under condemnation. Romans 8.1 says there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. No condemnation now. Why? Simply because Jesus has taken the, the death blow for you. And if you put your trust in him, then, then he's done that for you. We no longer are condemned. We're no longer under the judgment of God because Jesus took that judgment of God for us. If our faith is in Jesus, if we're in Christ, no condemnation. But if a person chooses to reject Jesus and not to put their trust in him, then it says they're already condemned. They're already walking in condemnation. And it's not because God condemns them. It's because they've refused the only means to be saved. And so there's only one, there's only one kind of result from that then. It's that you're under that condemnation because of your choice. Some will say that, you know, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, as long as you really believe it and you do good and you mean well, then regardless of what you believe, God's gonna accept you in that day. God's not gonna turn you aside. Many don't believe that. But this verse says otherwise. This verse makes clear that he who does not believe, and again, in context here, we're talking about Jesus, the Son of God. He who does not believe in Jesus is condemned. No matter if they are the most sincerest person, no matter if they give the most to charity, if they do the best works out there, there's only one condition for being saved and that's faith in Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, then you're rejecting that salvation. You're rejecting that forgiveness. And you're under condemnation, it says. Whatever condemnation people experience is of their own doing. First of all, because they haven't believed in the name of Jesus, the, and that name represents the very person. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves or, or Yahweh saves. It's, it's only through faith in Jesus that we can be saved and free from condemnation. And secondly, people are gonna experience condemnation because they would rather remain in their sinful condition. Look at what we read next here, verse 19. This makes that clear. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So here's the reality. Jesus has come. He's shown the light in the world. John, the Baptist talked about that in the first chapter. Uh, and a big again, kind of um, theme that John the Apostle brings up in this gospel is this difference of light and darkness. Believers, unbelievers, light, darkness. And here we're hit with that again. Light's come in the world, but people loved darkness rather than the light. 
So people are experiencing condemnation because they want to remain in their condition without being changed. And so as Jesus comes in now, everything's really been exposed. The light has shone in. And, and it's like, you know, if you, you go to a room somewhere where you flip the light and what do you see oftentimes? Maybe not around here, but um, I used to live out in, in um, Rhode Island at a, at a Bible college and I was responsible for kind of cleaning the kitchen at times. And I'd go in there, flip on the light and cockroaches just pow. Not, not the thing that you want to see in your kitchen, but that was the reality over there, right? But as soon as you flip on the light, the cockroaches are like, rah, and they're like running and they literally, rah, they would do that. No, they wouldn't do that, but they would run to the darkness. That's where they want to be. They don't want the light. They don't like it and they run. And there's people today like that where the light shines in and they want to run. That's why you see on, on TV or, you know, movies or whatever that whenever somebody's conducting that kind of, you know, illicit kind of business or, you know, shady transactions. It's usually being done in the dark, right? People want to keep that in the dark. They don't want the light shining in and exposing what they're doing. They want to do that in the secrecy, privacy, in the darkness. People oftentimes don't want the light to shine in because they want to remain in that condition. They think sin is pleasurable, tolerable, or manageable. It's none of those things but they've deceived themselves to think, I've got a handle on this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna live in this. I'm gonna enjoy this for a time. So I don't want the light to come in and to cause me to see that this is not right. I wanna continue on in it. They know coming to the light will convict them. Immorality then lies behind much unbelief. And they're simply just under the sway of the wicked one. Jesus, the light of the world, has come into the world and when we allow his light to come in and shine in our lives and reveal the areas that need to be corrected, then we can walk in that light as well and walk in the blessing. I'll tell you, it's much more enjoyable when you are out for a walk or a hike in the daytime. Have you ever gone hiking in the night? It's not fun. But when you're in the daytime, you're like, oh, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. And that's what happens when we allow Jesus to shine his light in and we start walking in the light. We run to the light. We walk in the light. We start going, oh man, I didn't know life could be this good. I didn't know life could be so enjoyable. This is exciting. This is new. This is great. This is wonderful. It's beautiful. Thank you, Jesus. That's what the light does. Look at verse 21. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. You see, the big difference between believers and unbelievers is how they respond to the light. You see, we're all guilty. We're not, believers aren't better than unbelievers. We've all been that level ground. We're guilty, we're, we're, sin, we're sinners, we're separated from God. It's just that believers allow the light to come in and allow the Lord to deal with that condition of sin. That's what separates believers from unbelievers. The believers say, I'm gonna walk to the light and allow the light to do that work of transforming me through the power of Jesus Christ, through his life coming in. Unbelievers are those that say, no, I don't want it. I'm running the other way. Nicodemus is a picture of that because Nicodemus came when? At night, Nicodemus was in darkness, but he realized, I need some light. So he came to Jesus. He came at night because it reveals his condition 
that he was in darkness. It's where every one of us were. You're not saved because you just were born and we're in the light. Hallelujah. I'm just like following God now. That's not why you're saved. You're saved because you were once in darkness and have allowed the light to come in. The light of Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is a picture of that. We were all in darkness, but we've come to Jesus. And Nicodemus now, we're going to see through the gospel of John. He's going to be allowing that light to shine in. And we're going to begin to see that transformation take place in Nicodemus' life. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Well, we've seen the explanation or explaining that plan of salvation here, what God desires to do. And now we see the exalting of the person of salvation here. Verse 22. All right. Verse 22 says this. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, now they're, they're baptizing at the same time. They're, they're contemporaries at this moment in ministry. They're both active in carrying out this work of the Lord. Although we do know that from John chapter four, verse two, that it seems it was Jesus's disciples that were doing most of the baptism. So we're not sure if Jesus was directly doing that or if his disciples were. Nevertheless, here they are, two different groups baptizing. John had moved over to a place um, in Anon near Salem where there was much water. So again, it seems like there's this, you know, full immersion baptism taking place here. And so understand at this point, all this is a baptism of preparation. This is not the Christian baptism where a person's put their faith in Jesus necessarily and, and now we're getting baptized and just kind of following along with God's word here. But it would seem this is a baptism of preparation. It was a, a work of repentance. John was seeking to prepare the hearts of, uh, of men and, and people to receive Jesus as the Messiah. It was that preparatory work taking place here, preparing them to accept Jesus and then to walk in the light. Now, and mentioning that John was thrown in prison, that's kind of an interesting thought that John the Apostle throws in there. And it's most likely just to kind of say that, you know, this is still lining up in, in, with the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke are known as the Synoptic Gospels. They kind of follow the, a very similar kind of flow in what they're saying. And if you read the other Gospels, you kind of get this idea that when Jesus' public ministry started, John was in prison. But yet now we see that oh, there was a, an interval of time, a period of time where they were both kind of active in ministry together. John's just kind of throwing that in there to say, we're not contradicting what's happening, but we're just kind of giving more uh, of the fuller picture of what's really going on. And so there's gonna come a time when John will be put in prison, but right now they're both baptizing. But here's what's happening now. There's a bit of a, a, a contentious dispute that arises. Look at verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he, speaking of Jesus, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. So the Jews meet with John's disciples. The Jews were like the religious leaders. The guys making sure everything is remaining kosher here. You start talking about purification. Many believe, you know, it's more than just kind of like, you know, rituals of washing your hands and things, but speaking of baptism. And it's believed that they're perhaps talking to them saying, listen, what, what gives here? 
You got Jesus baptizing over here, and there's a lot of people going with him, and then you're still doing your thing. Your ministry seems to be kind of like, you know, fizzling out. What's going on here? Who's got the right authority in this? Who's, who should, like, so there's this dispute going on. And there's this kind of pressure almost. And so John's disciples go back to him and say, John, what should we do? This is not good. We got to up our game here. We got to get the signs out. We got to get sandwich boards up showing where you are baptizing because everybody's going over to Jesus and we're losing all the people, John. We got to build up this ministry. What are we going to do? This is the issue at hand right now. There's a struggle taking place and it's centered around who's gaining more fanfare. You know, it can be a difficult thing, can't it? When we see other people that seem like they're being more blessed of God or they're becoming more successful or their work is bearing more fruit. That can be a difficult thing to handle. But we need to get a big picture on this as we see John is gonna do. You see, we're not competing against each other as believers, carrying out the work of the Lord. We're not in competition. We're to be complimenting each other we're to be working alongside one another for the big picture, the big cause, which is exalting Jesus. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says. A great pastor, minister, many of you have read his stuff. He says this, Dear Lord, I refuse henceforth to compete with any of thy servants. They have congregations larger than mine, so be it. I rejoice in their success. They have greater gifts, very well. That is not in their power nor in mine. I'm humbly grateful for their greater gifts and my smaller ones. I only pray that I may use to thy glory such modest gifts as I possess. I will not compare myself with any nor try to build up my self-esteem by noting where I may excel or one, uh, excel one or another in thy holy work. I herewith make a blanket disavowal of all intrinsic worth. I am but an unprofitable servant. I gladly go to the foot of the class and own myself the least of thy people. If I err in my self-judgment and actually underestimate myself, I do not want to know it. I, pur I purpose to pray for others and rejoice in their prosperity as if it were my own. And indeed, it is my own if, if it is thine own. For what is thine is mine. And while one plants and another waters, it is thou alone that giveth the increase. Wow, that's a good attitude to have. A.W. Tozer, a great man of God, that, Many people, I'm sure, were going, oh, look at the success. Yet he could sit there and go, there's other people that have bigger congregations than I. Others that are doing more. But Lord, it's all for you. And I can rejoice in what's taking place if it's about you. You know, I'll tell you, it's interesting that, you know, when, and, and I think what we see happening in the lower mainland among, you know, village church, for instance, Great, great fruit coming out of that. And when they decided to move in just down the road to the theater, I could have thought, oh boy, Lord, what are you doing? Village church down the road. But guess what? I can drive by them every morning, see their signs out there and say, Lord, thank you for what you're doing here at Village Church. Thank you for the people that are coming in and getting saved and are growing in you, Lord, and just bless them today. I don't have to compete because guess what? We're doing the same thing. Our desire, our heart should be the same cause, the same purpose, and that is seeing people come to know Jesus and seeing Jesus glorified. And so I don't, have, I don't have to come alongside them and pray, Lord, shut that down, but Lord, just bless them. <laughs> bless them. 
because we're in this together. And maybe some of you are sitting here going, what? I didn't know Village Church was down the road. Listen, <clears throat> listen. You guys just, yeah, just chill, all right? Okay. <laughs> so listen, that was John the Baptist's attitude as well. Look at what he says here, verse 27. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a great attitude in John. John recognized that whatever success or fruit that someone was experiencing was because God was doing that. God was bearing that fruit. God was using that person. And that's God's grace at work. We have to recognize that ourselves, that it's just simply by God's grace, whatever we do. We don't want to elevate a person or diminish a person based on what they have going on or not. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, well, why boast as though it were not a gift? Why boast as though you had something to do with it is what he's saying. Why do you brag about what you're doing when you've got nothing to do with it? It's all because of God. So whether that is flourishing that work over there, that ministry, that small group, that activity, that church, that ministry, whatever, regardless of what's going on, it's because of God. So rejoice in it. Don't bemoan it. Don't be jealous about it. Praise the Lord because of it. Because they're not doing anything because they're better or greater. It's God's grace. God has simply called you to be faithful with what he's called you to do. Be faithful with what God's called you to do. That's how he determines success. It's not who's got the biggest numbers, who's got the biggest church or ministry. In that day, he's gonna base it upon what he's entrusted with you. So be faithful in it. And let him receive all the praise and the glory for it. Here's what John the Baptist was called to do. Clear the way, prepare the way, and then get out of the way. Simple as that. Clear the way. In other words, remove all the kinds of obstacles that might allow people or, or stop people from seeing Jesus. Prepare the way. Promote that repentance, that, that idea of like, man, I need something greater, which allows people then to accept Jesus. And then get out of the way. Step aside and allow people now just to walk with Jesus. That's the key right there. John gives a familiar illustration of that kind of role. It's that of the friend of the bridegroom. See, that picture was a well-known one in relation to Israel and to God because God through the Old Testament was seen as that, that groom of Israel, Israel being the bride. Today in the, in the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. So it's a familiar kind of illustration. And what John implies is that he's not trying to gather a following for himself. He's simply interested in bringing the bride to the bridegroom. William Barclay put it this way. So the friend of the bridegroom, the Shoshman, had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. 
He arranged the wedding. He sent out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together and he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. He would open the door only when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he let him in and went away rejoicing for his task was completed and the lovers were together. He did not grudge the bridegroom the bride. He knew that his only task had been to bring bride and bridegroom together. And when that task was done, he willingly and gladly faded out of the center of the picture. I've had the privilege of being a best man at a wedding. Best man at the wedding is, is great. You know, you're there, you're supporting the bridegroom. But guess what? If after, you know, the ceremony, if after the reception and the bride and the bridegroom come together, they're making their exit and they come out of the building, everybody's outside, you know, throwing the rice on them and they walk into the car that's ready to whisk them away. If there I am in the back seat saying, all right, guys, let's go. Where are we heading next? There would be a problem. They'd be like, no, 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 no. You've taken on a little bit more of this, this best man business here. Your job's done, buddy. Get out of the car. And don't talk to me again for another week or so, right? There's a time when we get out of the way. We say, man, my purpose in life is just to point people to Jesus. My purpose is not to try to grow a ministry. My purpose is not to try to have the most numbers or whatever it might be in the context of your business, your home, whatever it might be. The context is we're not trying to try to do something to make ourselves appear successful. All we're trying to do is just keep people pointed to Jesus and see him exalted. That's why John says he must increase and I must decrease. Simple as that. It's the attitude, you see, we are all to have in every area of our, of our lives. In our marriages, Lord, let me decrease. In my workplace, let me decrease. Among my, my peer network, may I decrease and you increase, God. In whatever situation I'm in, whatever activity I'm involved in, Lord, may I be the one that's saying, I need to decrease that you might increase. How has Jesus increased? When he is high and lifted up. John 3, 14 says just that. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, the place of Jesus' greatest suffering when he was on the cross was the place of his greatest glorification. When it was seen that he was taking on the sin of the world but atoning for it, covering it, taking it away, forgiving it, that people might come into a relationship with him. The place of his greatest suffering was the place of his greatest glorification. So we need to have that big picture mentality that says, if God is being glorified, then that is what I want to rejoice in. Whether it's me having a part of it or somebody else. God, it's all about you being glorified and that's what I want to rejoice in. That's gonna be your greatest joy. Even so for us, like Jesus, when he was high and lifted up, greatest suffering became the greatest glorification when we are living that way, saying, Lord, I must decrease. Just as Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We need to take that role of dying to self. And it may not always be pleasant and fun, but it'll be the place of God's greatest glorification. 
that place of even our suffering at times, laying ourselves down. It's when Jesus will be greatest glorified. And when Jesus is greatly glorified in your life, it'll be when you are mostly satisfied. That'll be the place of your greatest joy and satisfaction when you see Jesus high and lifted up, exalted, glorified, where he is increasing and you are decreasing. Make no mistake about it. There's, there's a, a blessing that flows from that. These are all hard messages to, to talk about because we don't like to talk about dying to self. Oh my goodness. I didn't come to church to hear about that. What a downer. But I, I say that to say, man, Jesus was on to something. Because it, it's, it's when you're living for yourself that you're gonna get in the way. You're gonna get in the way of Jesus being exalted. You're gonna get in the way of what Jesus wants to do in your life. But when you're dying to self, and then Jesus can truly be seen. And that's why you exist. And John says, this is what brings the joy to me when I, as the friend of the bridegroom, gets to bring the bride to the groom. That's where I'm gonna have joy. The joy, the, the end of verse 29, do you see that? Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Guys, you wanna experience joy in your life? Then stop living for yourself. Die to yourself, decrease that he might increase. Let how you live be an opportunity for others to come to see Jesus more fully. And your joy will be made full. Verse 31, actually before we go on, let's look real quickly. Here's three musts from this chapter. Three musts, one for the sinner, verse seven, where Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. There's the must of the Savior, that he must be, he must be lifted up, verse 14. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then the must of the saint or the servant, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Very important. Verse 31, let's wrap this up here. Oh, yes, indeed. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all, he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. So John is really just looking to clarify the witness and the authority of Jesus that there's no one greater than Jesus because why? He came from above. He's not just sent from heaven or called of heaven. He has come from heaven. So he's above all. And those that have received that truth, they'd line themselves up with God and certify then that he is true. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the spirit by measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. So these verses let us know that in Jesus, we've seen the fullness of God, all right? We've seen the fullness of God. We've seen the fullness even of the Holy Spirit. Because in the Old Testament times, the prophets were given the Spirit by measure for a specific role, a specific time and purpose. But with Jesus, the Holy Spirit is now given without measure. Everything has been given into his hands. Colossians 2.9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This verse here, verse 35, is one of the seven times in John's gospel that we're told that the Father loves the son. There's a great relationship at work here. The father loves the son. Yes, he's given the son, but the son has come to do the will of the father. And then last verse here, verse 36. He who believes in the son 
has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So that idea, you know, the wrath, of, that's, a, that's a tough way to end. The wrath of God abides on him. Now understand that the, that word for wrath here does not mean a, a sudden gust of passion or a, a burst of, you know, kind of violent temper. Rather, it's the settled displeasure of God against sin. God is neither easily angered nor vindictive, but by his very nature, he's unalterably committed to opposing and judging all disobedience. He needs to deal with sin. He's a just God. He's a loving God, but he's a just God and, and sin needs to be dealt with. And so that's a tough way to live. The wrath of God abides on him, but here's the thing. The wrath of God does not need to abide on you because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And as we've been seeing all through this chapter, it's one of two ways you can go. Belief or unbelief. Faith or no faith. Run to the light or hide from the light. Have you put your faith in Jesus today? Have you allowed him to be the one that takes the wrath of God so that you don't have to and forgive you of your sin and cleanse you and make you whole today? Providing you with everlasting life. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son, not gonna see life. It's as simple as that. But he's given you everything you need to receive it. It's not through works, religion. That's how this whole chapter started. Nicodemus coming. How does a person see the kingdom of God? Because aren't we doing that? He was a religious leader. The teacher of Israel. He had it all together in the eyes of the religious circle. But yet Nicodemus realized, I'm missing something. There's something more I need. Jesus says, yeah, you need the life of Jesus coming in, causing you to be born again. Put your faith in Jesus as the savior of your sin and you today will be born again. New life in Christ. Wrath of God taken care of on Jesus and not on you where you can experience everlasting life. Praise the Lord for that. Worship team, I invite you guys to come up and we're gonna just close with a song, but let me just add these points of application here. Where do you stand today? Condemned or cleansed? We talked a bit about those that are condemned and those that aren't. The only difference is in your proximity to Jesus. Are you standing in him today? Secondly, are you one that loves the light or runs from it? Jesus, the light of the world, is not to judge you or bring you into, or is not out to judge you, but to bring you into the fullness of life that he has for you. So follow him. Thirdly, who are you living for? Is it Jesus or yourself? Because the blessing lies when we cause him to increase. So glorify him. Let's stand together today. Let's sing this last song just as a, a time to just ask the Lord to continue to put those things into us. Make that your prayer, that we be those that are standing in him, that we're following him and glorifying him here this morning.